Today on Law for No Bull, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco announced new Justice Department enforcement initiatives aimed at disrupting the financial markets that allow cybercriminals to flourish. Monaco unveiled these developments in the launch of the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team during a fireside chat with Garrett Graff at the Aspen Cyber Summit on Wednesday, October 6th. Here's the fireside chat in its entirety. And thanks uh, to uh, Lisa Monaco for joining us this morning. I'm Garrett Graff. I'm the director of the Cyber Initiative at the Aspen Institute and a contributing editor for Wired Magazine. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, uh, you have lived the rise of cybersecurity and cyber threats inside the U.S. government. Uh, in the uh, working previously at the FBI, the National Security Division of the Department of Justice, and then at the White House during the Bush and Obama administrations. And I wonder if you could start off this morning by talking a little bit about how the threat is different as you come into, back into government now as the Deputy Attorney General. Sort of what changed from 2016 to 2021? Well, thanks, Garrett. Great to be with you. Uh, nice to see you virtually. Nice to see Vivian and and be uh, at least relatively speaking back at Aspen. I was uh, thrilled to be, as Vivian said, the founding co-chair of the cybersecurity group. And uh, you guys are doing continuing to do great work. No surprise. Uh, so what's changed? Uh, look, I have now returned to the Justice Department after being, as you mentioned, um, out of the Justice Department for four years for the second term of the Obama administration as a Homeland Security counterterrorism advisor, where I had responsibility for coordinating uh, cybersecurity issues. Uh, and then, of course, four years out of government. A lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. So I think the last time I was in government in 2016, the beginning of 2017, uh, when it came to cyber threats, the main focus, I think it's fair to say, was on nation states, their ability to influence, to conduct destructive attacks, to engage in what I call geopolitical one-upsmanship. All of that is still true. And we know that nation states, uh, the big four, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, uh, pose a significant threat to national security, economic security, personal security. And that has continued to be the case with Russia um, engaging in supply chain attacks, China engaging in the um, Microsoft Exchange uh, vulnerability exploitation, going after infectious disease research, you name it. Uh, it goes on and on. I would say from that perspective, my coming back, my perspective is that the overall environment is one that I think is more aggressive. It is more sophisticated in what we're seeing. Uh, and frankly, it's more belligerent in what the actors are doing. But what struck me most, uh, Garrett, is upon my return and kind of getting back into and having access to uh, more information is that... The main players in the nation state scene uh, now feel like they are more blended with criminal groups, and it looks like they are forming sometimes maybe it's alliances of convenience, uh, alliances of opportunity. Uh, and sometimes alliances by design uh, with national security actors. And uh, so the criminal groups and the threats that they uh, pose, and I'm sure we'll talk more about them, they have a national security overlay. And the other thing that has struck me about this, Garrett, is there is a brazenness 
to the tactics um, and the techniques from ransomware and digital extortion. You know, these are actions not of a stealthy kind of cat burglar type, but really brash, uh, more like uh, the kind of bomb laden hostage taker or terrorist. And when we think about the types of ransomware attacks that we've seen and the impact that they have on critical infrastructure and potentially uh, life and death, the, the, the collateral, collateral consequences, you know, what we've seen in some of these uh, criminal groups, they, there's a seeming really uh, disinterest in those uh, consequences. Uh, and so then I think the last uh, thing I'd say is I'm, I'm struck by just how broad this is. We know that the FBI is investigating more than 100 ransomware variants, uh, and that's impacting thousands of, of victims. So um, that's that's the perspective I've got. Um, uh, there's certainly much to do in this space, uh, but really uh, it is a crowded and aggressive threat landscape. Lisa, one of the things that you started almost immediately when you came in to the Justice Department this uh, this spring was a review of the department's uh, cyber posture and sort of how it was looking at uh, these threats, looking at how the department itself was structured, what tools and new authorities the uh, Justice Department could bring to address these problems. I wonder if you could give us an update on your thinking and the department's thinking of what is coming out of that review. Sure, I'd be I'd be happy to. Uh, first, it's it's obviously fantastic to be back at the Department of Justice and seeing all the uh, amazing work that is going into uh, cyber issues from the National Security Division uh, to uh, the Criminal Division's uh, Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section to uh, the infusion of intelligence uh, that the FBI brings to the table. Uh, but as I just said, the, the threat is so rapidly evolving. Uh, I think, and it, uh, it seemed to me, that we need to make sure that we can adjust at the speed of the threat in terms of what we are doing and, and what we um, are bringing to the table. So we did launch a comprehensive cyber review to really do two, uh, three things, uh, Garrett. Uh, one, assess how we can improve our capability uh, to investigate, prosecute, and disrupt uh, these actors um, and their evolving techniques. The second is to build our own resiliency as a department uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. And the third is, what can we do to prepare the next generation uh, when it comes to department uh, attorneys and prosecutors uh, to, to go after these threats? Um, and we are not waiting for the conclusion of the review to take action, uh, to go after the ecosystem that supports malicious cyber activity, to hold accountable those who are entrusted with government dollars and who work on government systems and to build that next generation. So uh, I am pleased today uh, Garrett, to be able to announce uh, a few new initiatives uh, that we are launching as a result of this review. The first is we are launching today the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team. Uh, 
Now, we've already made great strides in combating misuse of cryptocurrency platforms, and we've shown we won't hesitate to go after those platforms that help criminals launder or hide their uh, criminal proceeds. We've, we've done this in August when we went after uh, the Darknet Bitcoin mixer, where we went after the Helix money laundering service. So we've got points on the board when it comes uh, to this issue, but we want to strengthen our capacity to dismantle financial the financial ecosystem that enables uh, these criminal actors to flourish, quite frankly, and to profit um, from what they're doing. And we're going to do that by drawing on our cyber experts and cyber prosecutors, our money laundering experts. Um, and when you think about this, you know, we need to centralize and build on the expertise that we already have. And the analogy I would make, Garrett, so people can understand this is this. Uh, kind of stepping back, when you think about it, we have been enforcing the securities laws for decades. Uh, we police fraud on the markets with insider trading uh, cases or market manipulation investigations. And the point, of course, is to protect consumers uh, and to make sure we can all have confidence in the markets that we're engaging in. And the same has got to be true as the technology uh, advances. So we need to evolve with it. Crypto uh, currency exchanges want to be the, the banks of the future. Well, we need to make sure that folks can have confidence uh, when they're using these systems. And we need to make sure we're poised to root out abuse that can take hold on them. So the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team is something we're launching today. Uh, the second thing I would say when it comes to actions we are not hesitating and not waiting to take before the conclusion of the review is uh, with regard to our civil enforcement tools. So today uh, we are also launching a civil cyber fraud uh, initiative. Now, what does this mean? For too long, companies have chosen silence uh, under the mistaken belief that it's less risky to hide a breach than to bring it forward and to report it. Well, that changes today. Uh, we are announcing for the first time that we will use our civil enforcement tools to pursue companies, those who are government contractors or receive federal funds, when they fail to, re uh, to follow required cybersecurity standards, because we know that puts all of us at risk and will protect whistleblowers who bring those violations and those failures forward. And we're using something called the False Claims Act, which allows us to enforce and extract fines, very substantial fines from government contractors who uh, misuse government dollars or who uh, engage in uh, engage in abuse. And so where those who are entrusted with government dollars, who are entrusted to work on sensitive government systems, fail to follow required cybersecurity standards, we're going to go after that behavior and extract very hefty, uh, very hefty fines. So this is a, a, a tool that we have to ensure that taxpayer dollars are used appropriately and, and to guard uh, the public fisc and the public trust. And that's what we're going to do uh, with respect to this civil fraud uh, initiative. And then lastly, I mentioned building the next generation. We've already announced uh, a new hiring initi initiative, the Cyber Fellows Program. We've got to build uh, attorneys and prosecutors who are as conversant in our traditional criminal tools 
as they are the national security aspects and the intelligence aspects. So we're very excited and getting lots of interest from, from uh, young uh, tech savvy uh, lawyers who aspire to work in this space. Lisa, you, um, and uh, as a disclosure for anyone who doesn't know this, I, I uh, wrote a book with one of your colleagues, John Carlin, about uh, the time that you did, that you helped lead the National Security Division. And, and when you really pioneered the, what we now think of as sort of the name and shame uh, nation state hacker indictments. Um, I, I wonder now, you know, beginning, of course, with that May 2014 indictment of the five PLA hackers, um, something that we began to see as a very routine tool uh, of both the Obama administration in the second term and then uh, the Trump administration over the last uh, four years. Um, I wonder, as you come back into the department now, uh, what do you make of that as a strategy? Do you think it proved effective? Um, is it something that you think that you are going to continue to push the department to be doing more name and shame indictments going forward? Well, look, I think uh, we will continue to use it and we should continue to use it as one tool. Um, as you know, Garrett, I have long been an advocate that we need to use all of the tools that we can to disrupt uh, malicious cyber activity. Uh, the One of the tools that we can bring to bear as prosecutors at the Department of Justice is the ability to use our, our, criminal, uh, our criminal enforcement powers. And so indictments are one option. Uh, they are among the tools that we can use, but they're not exclusive. And so I don't think we should leave them on the table. Uh, but I also want to um, challenge the premise a little bit in your question, uh, Garrett, which is um, that they it's only about naming and shaming. As you know, we have actually ended up getting folks into a courtroom, getting people here in the United States through arrests, through extraditions, through lure uh, operations, uh, and through basic patience uh, for folks to slip up. Uh, and we do and have been able to get hands on folks. Uh, but the other uh, thing that has come out of this um, using criminal indictments uh, to identify and isolate and highlight particularly nation state driven uh, malicious cyber activity is we are building coalitions with partner nations to go after this activity. We're banding together to isolate the malicious cyber activity, to highlight it, to investigate it, to prosecute it, and doing so not only on people uh, you know, the, the guys with the fingers on the keyboard, but also the infrastructure, the ecosystem that supports um, the malicious cyber activity. And, and we saw that in the uh, international alliance that frankly brought down uh, the botnet, uh, the, the Emotet botnet um, just a few months ago. So I think we will continue to use all the tools uh, we possibly can, uh, and we're evolving and doing so more, more rapidly. So for instance, uh, yes, we're using indictments uh, to bring criminal enforcement actions, but we're also expanding our tool set. We are seizing ransomware payments, as you saw with the Colonial Pipeline uh, ransomware payment. We're using our criminal and civil forfeiture tools uh, to and those authorities to go after those ransom payments, return 
those payments to the victims uh, and hopefully encouraging a virtuous cycle where victims come forward, tell us so we can literally follow the money and hopefully make sure that we can get in front of the next victim um, and uh, prevent uh, the cascading uh, victims that uh, come about with these uh, malicious cyber actors. And we're also going after and dismantling uh, infrastructure, whether it comes uh, to uh, you know getting a hold of web shells uh, and again, going after the infrastructure. So I think there's a lot to be said for using our uh, criminal tools and frankly, just using all the tools we can uh, to address this very rapidly evolving threat. You, you mentioned cryptocurrency there. You mentioned the, the ransomware payments um, uh, this summer. Um, how much, uh, when you look at the ransomware problem, um, and, and which has been you know one of the defining threats in the cyber realm this year, how much of this do you think is a ransomware problem and how much of it do you think is a cryptocurrency problem? I mean, you just talked about this in the context of uh, the new cryptocurrency uh, team you want to build, the new cryptocurrency expertise you want to build out. Um, how, how much of this is sort of a fundamental problem with the ability of anonymized financial instruments like cryptocurrency to enable uh, criminal action? Look, I think they're inextricably linked, right? And we have seen um, the ransomware problem grow and it's doing so on a business model that folks are getting paid, right? And the way they are getting paid is through uh, cryptocurrency because of the anonymity uh, it provides. Uh, so I think you can't uh, disaggregate uh, those, uh, the challenge here. I think they come kind of hand in glove, uh, but I think we can, um, we can go at both. And that's why we are making sure we are targeting the ecosystem that supports and fuels the ransomware activity. That means the cryptocurrency exchanges, that means uh, the infrastructure. Uh, and you know we wanna make sure we are going after the entire, what we call criminal supply chain involved here uh, that ends up in the ransomware deployment, but it doesn't start there. Uh, Lisa, I want to ask a little bit, uh, Chris Bing from Reuters in the, the chat has asked a question about um, mercenary hacking services. And this was something that we actually saw the Justice Department act on just within the last couple of weeks, bringing a deferred prosecution agreement against uh, three former members of the US intelligence community um, for hacking activities uh, overseas. And I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about, uh, you know, philosophically, strategically, criminally, you know, how does the department see the rise of, you know, mercenary hackers for hire on the global internet and the, the tools and the skills developed in, in the US military, in the US intelligence community sort of being turned uh, out into the private sector? Look, I think it's something we have to be um, pretty concerned about. Uh, these are uh, oftentimes, um, you know, issues that uh, we, uh, practices that get engaged in by other governments um, that we take issue with uh, that may result in, um, uh, you know, 
activities that as a matter of uh, foreign policy and our own national values, uh, we don't want to encourage. Um, but as I sit from my perch in the Justice Department, what I think about is uh, individuals who have, by virtue of their, whether it's their military service, their service in uh, the intelligence community, have a security clearance. And that is something that they earn and they have, uh, they have a position of trust. Uh, and then when they leave government, um, using that as a calling card uh, to engage in, in uh, activities uh, that may not always um, end up serving uh, the public good. And so I do think we have to think about that as a, um, you know, how we are uh, ensuring that folks who have a security clearance, which of course is not a right, it is a privilege, um, how uh, folks are using those, uh, those clearances uh, once they leave government. And then let me ask you about another recent uh, Justice Department case and, and controversy. I wonder if you could uh, address how you view the FBI's handling of the Kaseya ransomware incident and um, the, the controversy over whether the FBI actually withheld decryption keys from businesses in order to further its own investigation. So, look, I think um, this is, you know, you'll you'll be... Uh, You'll hopefully understand that given that it's a matter still under investigation, uh, I'm going to be uh, constrained in what I can say specifically. But what I'd say generally is um, this is an example and how to handle uh, the uh, things like encryption keys with the with uh, the private sector and victims um, this is an example of how we have to make sure we are adjusting at the speed of the threat so uh, there is as the as the director of the fbi has, has spoken about publicly recently um, we want to make sure that we can provide information to the private sector uh, but it often that results from our investigations, um, but we want to make sure that we're doing so in a way that accounts for any unintended consequences. It can be very um, uh, difficult and time-consuming technical issues to work through uh, to make sure, for instance, that a particular en encryption key might work it, uh, versus causing damage if it is distributed uh, widely. We have to make sure uh, that we don't end up having unintended consequences. And these are all the things that we have to build up and scale up our ability to engage uh, with the private sector. You know, something you and I, Garrett, have talked about a lot in the past, which is how this, our government, our culture uh, has changed post 9-11 and how we have reacted as a government with our laws, uh, our governmental structures to respond to the counterterrorism threat. I am one who believes that there's a lot we can learn from that and apply to the cyber threat. But where that analogy breaks down is on the role of the private sector. Um, and we know that critical information, the lion's share of it, when it comes to cyber threats, uh, resides in the private sector. And we need to build up the muscles uh, uh, and the muscle memory to engage quickly and productively and constructively with the private sector to go after these malicious cyber actors 
to get after uh, the ecosystem that supports it. Uh, and that is something I think we still need to be doing a lot more work on. We've gotten better, uh, but that critical rapid information sharing between the government and the private sector is really uh, gonna be uh, the key for us being able to adjust uh, to the speed of the evolving threat. That's why this morning in an op-ed, uh, I called for Congress to act on a national um, incident reporting standard, because uh, we simply can't um, wait for uh, folks to uh, kind of come in the door piecemeal. We really need to up our game when it comes to sharing information. I wonder, as you're looking at the um, the cyber posture of the department, are you thinking about, uh, do, do you think that the FBI and the Justice Department is organized correctly to tackle these ransomware incidents? Um, you know, this is something I know that you struggled with, uh, with Director Mueller at the FBI, thinking about counterterrorism uh, in the wake of 9-11. Um, does the Justice Department need to be thinking about how to structure ransomware investigations differently in terms of, you know, FBI field office investigations versus main justice versus FBI headquarters? I mean, do you, are you thinking about something like a national ransomware task force or, uh, or, or strike team in Washington to deal with these incidents nationally? Well, we are looking at all of this, uh, Garrett, and that's why we did set up uh, a few months ago the Ransomware and Digital Extortion Task Force here at the department, leveraging all uh, the different parts of the department to make sure that we are looking at this holistically. It can't be siloed. Another lesson uh, from 9-11, that we can't look at the threat and the challenge in individual silos. So we did set up a Ransomware and Digital Extortion Task Force. We also uh, sent a directive to all the 93 U.S. attorney's offices and said, where you see a ransomware uh, event in your district, whether it involves a ransomware uh, attack on a company, whether it involves a part of the ecosystem, we want to know about it so we have a national picture. As you know, Garrett, it's the kind of reporting we've required from the field for years post 9-11 when it comes to terrorist uh, activity. And we want to do the same heightened level of awareness and national picture reporting when it comes to ransomware. So, yes, I think we're looking at all of that. Let me ask one final question, then we can move on to uh, your colleague, the Deputy Secretary of Energy and uh, David Sanger um, and his interview. Um, I wonder if you could give us a little bit more detail about the cryptocurrency initiative um, in terms of how you're thinking about which laws and regulations it will focus on, um, how much of this you see as a criminal supply chain issue or a banking confidence issue. I think it's both, Garrett. I really do think it's both. Um, look, uh, let's be clear, cryptocurrency, blockchain technology, these are lawful um, tools and they have good uses. Um, the challenge we have is how to deal with the extra anonymity that those technologies provide to criminal actors. Um, and what we wanna do is focus on building our capacity, our ability to strip that anonymity through court 
uh, authorized actions, uh, and I've highlighted a few of them uh, here today, and you've seen it at work in things like uh, the Colonial Pipeline operation, where we're able to return that money to the victim. Um, but we, we view this as part of going after the entire criminal supply chain. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, thanks so much for joining us at the Aspen Cyber Summit, uh, and we'll look forward to hosting you in person again sometime soon. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.